Hello and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and this is episode 79. Thanks for being here. This is a very special episode in that it is not me and a guest or two. It is me and you, dear listener, to talk about one of my favorite topics. My book, iOS Access for All, your comprehensive guide to accessibility for iPhone and iPad. I know, at least uh, once a year I do an episode that focuses on the book, but it's time to do so again and just give you an idea of what's new in the iOS 16 edition, which is a little bit late out of the starting gate. I want to reflect on the history of publishing this book because this is, the iOS 16 version, is the 10th edition. I first published this book for iOS 7, and it has been a long, strange trip through all of the iOS updates I was listening to somebody speak of iOS 7 today on a podcast, and they said, you know, that is probably the most iconic landmark of iOS operating systems. And that was true for everyone, but it was especially true for accessibility. And so it was an interesting time to begin my journey into iOS accessibility publishing. So first we'll do the origin story of the book, because I I talk a lot about the book on podcasts and other venues, but I don't know that I get into the origin story of it, sort of how I became the iOS accessibility person. And if anybody asks who I am, that's who I am. I'm the iOS accessibility person or that old movie chick, one of the two. In any case, um, I was not an accessibility person. I was a technology writer, journalist. I had worked for technology magazines and on websites. And I had written a whole bunch of books for technology publishers. So I would write a book about web development, a project product called Go Live from Adobe. I wrote about wireless networking. I wrote about Apple's iLife. I wrote about iOS for Dummies and the Mac Answers uh, book, which are were both Mac-specific sort of how-to and help guides, and I had a co-writer with those. But suffice it to say, I was making a lot of my living and spending a lot of my time writing books. But there came a period in the late 2000s where you just couldn't do that anymore, and these were books that were on paper, and, and sure, the books had gone digital, but there had also been sort of a retrenchment in technology publishing because so much of what people were writing books about was available on the web, either for free or not for free. But it meant that you couldn't convince as many people to spend 20 or $25 on a 200-page book as you used to. So that was kind of drying up for me. And I knew I was a good writer and I knew I had something to offer, but I didn't know where to offer it. And I explored the idea of self-publishing. And then I was like, okay, well, what am I going to self-publish? What am I motivated enough to write about that I would sit and you know, publish something myself? And I, as a visually impaired person who had worked in the tech journalism business for years and had only written one, maybe two pieces that even touched on accessibility, I sort of got the idea, maybe this is the time. Maybe I should write about accessibility, both from a point of view, you know, from whatever point of view made sense for the marketplace. And I think at the beginning, I, I might have wanted to write about voiceover for the Mac, even though I wasn't a voiceover user. That's probably why I moved on to iOS. Uh, but I, at the beginning, it was just, let's write a book and let's have accessibility be a component of it and let's self-publish it. So, you know, no big came up with the idea to do that. Those pieces all came together one Thanksgiving in my mom's living room when I was sort of despairing of my prospects, of my ability to write a book. I didn't have a, a jobby job at that time, so I was just looking for a thing to do. And I, um, I, I really hate it when people who have made a success of an entrepreneurial venture 
make it sound like it was easy. Like they just sat there in a light at, at, on their mom's living room couch and a light bulb came on and the rest is history. And I want to assure you that that was not the case. Between the time I had the idea and the time I published the book, it was probably a year. And I spent most of that time figuring out how one published a book and what the economics of that were and how one physically did it and understanding what accessibility needs were out there, learning the market, meeting people, talking to people, going to conferences and saying, just suppose there was a book about accessibility for such and such a platform. What would you want to see in there? I took all that year's worth of research, uh, which cost me money, by the way, because you can't go to conferences and not buy drinks. Uh, I took all that research and finally came up with this plan that I was going to write a book about iOS because several things had come into place. iOS had become accessible in 2009. See, 36 seconds that changed everything, how the iPhone learned to talk, my documentary on that, which talks about when iOS finally, after two years, became accessible to people with disabilities. So I'd been accessible for a while. I had finally been able to get an iPhone because it was accessible. And it was a platform where there was a lot of information out there on the internet, but a lot of it had gotten outdated because whoever was told to publish it, uh, whether it was an entity for people with disabilities or some publication, uh, it had gotten out of date in most cases, or it was incomplete, So, or it only covered voiceover, and there were all these other accessibility features that nobody covered. Nobody was writing about low vision. I never read anything about low vision accessibility until I started writing it. There are other people who have written a little bit about it, I suppose, yeah, but mostly it's me. And certainly that was true of physical and motor accessibility and hearing accessibility. All those pieces were not really covered very well or very completely. So that's why one of the first words that I put in my book title, even before it was a book, was comprehensive. Because it felt really important to me that whatever I was going to write was going to be comprehensive and cover all of the accessibility and disability issues. And that way I could go to somebody, whatever the disability that they had, and I could say, here's a book that might interest you if you have iOS or if you want an iPhone. And they couldn't come back to me and say, well, you know, I don't really use voiceover. I'm a low vision person. Or I don't really use switch control. I have a hearing disability. And I wanted to be in a position of saying, you know what? It's not that expensive. Here's a book that you won't read 100% of, but you will read enough of it. You will benefit from it because of the kind of disability you have or the kind of accessibility tools that you need. So that was the plan. And I'm thinking about it just now. I'm thinking about all the stuff I spent that year doing. Uh, reading and learning and planning. And at the time, iOS 6 was the current operating system. And I thought, well, I'm going to be able to publish an iOS 6 version relatively soon after that is released. And as it happened, that was not the case. And I guess it was good for me because iOS 7 was such a big change that I'm pretty sure I would have had to ditch a lot of what I had done for iOS 6. And the benefit of having the first book be about iOS 7 and the benefit of myself publishing it was that a lot of my dislike of iOS 7, a lot of my anger, a lot of my frustration, which many people shared, could come out in the book. And I could say, here's how to use iOS 7. I'm just as mad about it as you are. And when iOS 7.1 came out, it is the one dot release that I have vivid memories of because that was the one where they rolled back a lot of what they had done in iOS 7 in terms of thin fonts and low contrast and bright white screens. They either rolled it back or they provided accessibility features that mitigated it if you had low vision specifically. So I always called that the one low vision dot release in iOS history. 
And uh, I quickly updated the book to cover iOS 7.1, and the rest was history, I suppose. But it was a struggle, and it was a frustrating experience. And at the same time, I was trying to learn how to publish a book. My beginnings with this book, in terms of the content, were sort of adversarial. And I had had an adversarial relationship with sort of the publishing landscape and with the idea that accessibility was so little talked about back in those days, too, because I would read things that build themselves as a comprehensive guide to iOS, and then I would find that the word accessibility was not mentioned in that guide. It's still the case. Very often, something that defines itself as comprehensive will not include accessibility, and you read accessibility material in the mainstream when it is called out as a secret feature or there is some specific article about something that is little known and hard to find. And that's where accessibility gets covered, but not in the mainstream write-ups. And I had mixed feelings about it because what I would really like to have done is probably contribute to some of those more mainstream write-ups and say, you know, you're missing literally an entire aspect of iOS that is crucial to the way some people who are probably readers of yours are experiencing this platform. And you're ignorant if you're not covering it. And uh, instead of being able to do that, what I ended up doing was just creating an accessibility-focused project because I felt like that was the thing that I could contribute the most because I was somebody who was a professional writer who knew how to create a how-to guide. I had done it many times, especially on the Mac and iOS platform. And the thing that I didn't know, interestingly enough, was enough about what folks with accessibility needs needed. So I spent a lot of time in um, on Twitter. I spent a lot of time reading. I spent a lot of time at conferences, talking to people, asking them what they wanted, asking them if they would be supportive of a project like this if I made it, looking at existing accessibility-related information on the web, much of which was out of date. And that's where I got the idea to make this thing. I talked to publishers about publishing it, and they said, no, uh, there's no, there's not enough market for it unless you can prove to me that there's a market. And the only proof I could provide was the many people that I talked to and followed on Twitter and who followed me on Twitter and the like. And so I just decided that the only route that was feasible for me was to self-publish a book. And again, a lot of the details of that journey, a lot of the details of how I created the book and how I continue to create that book are available in other venues online. So I won't bore you with the story of how pages almost ruined my life in 2014. (laughs) As tantalizing as that might be. All right. I want to talk about the book in just a second, but first some reflections on what it's like to have done this for 10 editions, almost 10 years, not quite. It's been 10 years in my brain, but I haven't been publishing the thing for 10 years, but there have been 10 editions, one for each iOS edition. And you get into the rhythm that everybody else who covers Apple does, where there's an iOS release in the fall, and you make the work that you're going to make about that release, whether it's a giant review or a book or whatever it might be in the fall, and then you move along. And then there's another one the next year, and you try to explain what's new and what's cool about the updated version. And I've done all that. And at the same time, as you're self-publishing a book, you figured out how to publish it one way the first time, and then you learned a few more things along the way. Some of the things I learned along the way, uh, I produced this EPUB edition of the book because, number one, EPUB is completely and totally accessible. It's based on XHTML. It is also the format that Apple Books wants from you if you're going to submit to the bookstore. So 
yay for that. Uh, and it was it was a great format for me. I learned a lot about CSS putting the book together. You might not even be able to tell if you look at it, but I did learn a lot about CSS over the course of this. I, I had known about it before. I mean, I wrote a book about web development, but to sort of hand code everything and to think about the relationship of one font or typeface to another and sizes of things, especially since they were expressed in relative rather than absolute terms, was interesting. And also making sure that font sizes and things were appropriate for a an audience that included people with low vision, even though they had the ability to control type sizes themselves within their apps, within the clients that were reading the book, all that kind of stuff. Lots and lots of things over the course of the years evolved. The publishing process evolved somewhat. As I mentioned, I've written and talked a lot about my struggles with it. Uh, the thing that swiped me upside the head the most at one point was when I realized and when people told me that they really wanted a PDF version of the book, which if you insist on making an accessible version of a PDF is easier said than done, and it has taken a lot of struggle. And I have actually gotten a lot of mileage on the podcast circuit about complaining uh, about PDFs and, and how difficult they are to make, at least the way I make the books. And then at the end, I go, oh, right, we need to make a PDF. And then you have to generate one that is accessible. And I still hate the format. I think it's terrible, and I, I still do it because people want to read it. Something like 20 to 30 percent of the people who read my book want to read it in PDF format. And, uh, you know, I am not a customer is always right kind of person, by which I mean I'm not a business person, okay? I I, <laughs> I desperately want people to like what I do, uh, but I am not the sort of person that goes, oh, you want PDFs? I'll make you a PDF. And I nod and I'm happy. I'm going to continue to talk about it as a technology challenge, and, and I have in many venues, so I won't waste your time on that because I think the process is much easier now in 2023 than it was in 2015 or 2016 or 2018 for that matter. And uh, self-publishing was an interesting thing because I, I sort of learned about the intersection of entrepreneurship with technical production of books and figuring out how you do editing and how you get uh, design work done and how you do all of that sort of on a shoestring. Uh, the, the other thing I hate, I mentioned before that I, when entrepreneurs, people who have created a successful independent project sort of tell their stories there's always this sort of light bulb moment and then everything is wonderful because of their own uh, brilliance and skill and ability to turn their dream into reality. And it's not a straight line upward in my experience. And so I sort of don't like it when people uh, gloss over the struggles and the failures. Uh, and one of my struggles and failures was just figuring out like, well, how do you how do you how do you market a book? How do you let people know it's out there? How do you do that in a continuous way? In and how do you um, you know how do you how do you make a thing people want? And then how do you tell people that this is a thing that they want and get them to uh, to part with their dough? And that's been not a struggle, but it's been sort of a oh right, I have to do that once the book is done because. I'm a content person through and through, man. I, I make stuff. I, I write stuff. And the most important thing to me is always that, that, that the thing I write is, is be, as good as it possibly can be. So uh, 10 years down the line, my production of the book is not a whole lot different than it was at the beginning. It's much more streamlined than it was, but the tools are very similar. And I've discovered, as I've thought about more uh, modern ways to do what I do, that I like the tools that I have and I, I like my workflow. And so uh, that's that's 10 years. Uh, two innovations for this time around that don't have to do with the content of the book. 
are that I decided to use a font called Atkinson Hyperlegible, which is a font the Braille Institute has put out there into the world that is supposed to be both easy for people with low vision to read and also easy for scanners to scan. So if you create something in Atkinson Hyperlegible and you print it, then an OCR scanner is supposed to be able to easily turn that into uh, legible uh, text. And the thing I should say about it is it's a sans serif font. I um, I love Futura. Futura was always my favorite font. And for me, just personally, it was easy to read because it was sort of big and uh, it was the, the openings were large uh, inside of characters and even between characters. And I just always I found it very, very sort of open and big to read. And I, and I liked it. It wasn't as thin as, say, Helvetica. I, I always liked those fonts. Uh, Futura is I probably a little bit too too decorative to be entirely legible. And then I found out this year that it's old-fashioned. I didn't know that. I know it's an old font. In fact, uh, there used to be a printing company, a typography company here uh, in Austin, Texas, where I live, called Futura Printing. Maybe that's why I like Futura. I don't know. Anyway, Futura is still my favorite font, but Atkinson Hyperlocal is the font that I'm using for... Hy- hyperlegible. I always say hyperlocal. It's hyperlegible is the font I'm using for the book. Also, I got a new cover design for the 10th edition design by the great Anthony Johnston. I've said several places that it's like having a uh, portrait painter to create your passport photo because Anthony is a very accomplished uh, writer. He's a publisher. He's, he's done many, many things. He's also a designer. And he was kind enough to design my cover for a fee that I could afford uh, because Anthony is somebody I, I know from the Incomparable Network podcasts. And I'm, uh, I'm honored that he was willing to do that for me. So it, it does not go unappreciated. It absolutely was is great. And I feel honored to have an Anthony Johnson original as the cover of my book. Let's talk a little bit about the organization of the book. It's divided into four parts. First part being an introductory part, second part covering the features in iOS that are addressing particular disability groups. The third part is sort of a catch-all and then you have everything from how Siri and the iPad work to uh, system-level stuff. And then there is a, a part uh, that includes apps, so both the apps that are included with iOS and a directory of third-party apps that are carefully curated to be both accessible and useful. And then finally, there is a set of appendices that deal with uh, commands and shortcuts. What's new in iOS 16? It was a relatively modest update for iOS 16. There are some interesting marquee features for voiceover. One of the big ones is one called door detection, which is a sibling to people detection that we got in iOS 14. Door detection is a feature available on LiDAR-equipped phones and iPads only, which allows the device to determine when there's a door present and give you information about it. This is intended for somebody who's blind. So it'll tell you, is it a door? Is it open? Does it have a knob or a lever or some other sort of open or enclosure? Does it have a sign? The idea is that if you are in an environment where you don't know the configuration of doorways and you would like to and you'd like to go through them, then door detection will help you. It is housed in the magnifier app as is people detection. And again, you have to have a LiDAR-equipped device to use it. And I've heard, uh, I've I played with it some, and I, I find it interesting, although a little slow. And I've heard mixed reactions from some people. Some people love it, and some people do not. 
uh, or, or do not find it as useful as they would like. But we cover that certainly in Chapter 3. Also, VoiceOver added a whole bunch of third-party voices this time around. So the Eloquence uh, suite of voices has been licensed by Apple and included with VoiceOver. So you won't be able to use Eloquent voices with uh, Siri, but you can use them with VoiceOver and with Speak Screen and Speak Selection. And this is of benefit to people who've used screen readers from other entities in the past, say NVDA or JAWS, and who like the Eloquence voices because they're particularly well-suited to reading very quickly. Another feature is uh, another feature that's new and is also part of the Magnifier app. It's called Magnifier Activities. So the idea here is that you can, with Magnifier, set up a bunch of settings. So color contrast, zoom level, uh, and, and other things that Magnifier allows you to choose from a macro point of view. And you can put them together as activities. So you might have an activity that's suited to uh, reading a food label and a different activity that's suited to reading signage on a street or across the room. And then you can, from a menu, choose the activity that you, uh, that you want to use. So that's a nice little feature, kind of hidden and kind of specific to somebody who is using Magnifier on a regular basis. But it's nice to see that app, which has a lot of choices for you in terms of color, contrast, and theming and the like, uh, it allow you to make those into essentially macros so that you don't have to change your setting every time you do something different with the Magnifier app. For folks with hearing disabilities, we include sound recognition, customized sound recognition, Sound recognition has been around for a couple of versions now, and with it, you can tell your device to listen for a particular sound, like a dog barking or a doorbell or a baby crying or fire, a fire alarm, and uh, the device will blink an LED alert so that if you can't hear that sound, you can be alerted in the case that you need to take an action. Custom sound recognition came in iOS 16, and that makes it possible to create any sound that you like and have iOS remember it. I always give the example of my washing machine or my rice cooker, which have these sort of pleasant chirpy sounds that wouldn't otherwise be picked up by sound recognition. But you're using machine learning to identify uh, and then later uh, hear the sound and and provide an alert that indicates that, yeah, maybe this is an emergency situation or maybe it's just a situation where you want to take your rice out of the cooker. Also for low vision folks, uh, display zoom on the iPad. That's been a feature that's been available on the iPhone for a while. It used to be that display zoom would make it possible for you to have fewer but bigger icons on your home screen. And then they sort of updated it. So you get the same number of icons, but they're a little bit bigger. And some texts, some screens had bigger text or just, just sort of a bigger, sort of a zoomed in look. And now that's available on the iPad if you like that. And then something I don't talk about in particularly great detail because the Apple Watch is kind of beyond the scope of the book, uh, but Apple Watch mirroring, which allows you to see your Apple Watch screen on your phone and use the gestures that you know from your phone, including assistive touch gestures and the like, uh, to control your watch or to view your watch at a slightly larger size. So if if dexterity is an issue when you're trying to work with an Apple Watch, uh, then this uh, feature will help out with that. The book addresses updates that have been made in apps. I mentioned Mail and Safari and Messages had some updates. Books had a theming update. And there are a lot of sort of typical cosmetic changes or even feature changes that iOS makes, all of which I cover in the book. I, I want to say that there are some that are great and some that are not so great. 
Uh, I like some of the privacy and security updates that were made, uh, the safety check and the lockdown mode and, and the various other features. I like the idea of the updated focus modes, which I cover in Chapter 7. I like the idea, but I don't use them, if I'm being honest, because I just my brain doesn't work that way. I don't go from one situation where I want one group of apps and one lock screen to another situation where I want another group of apps and another lock screen. I sort of adapt to the phone rather than having the phone adapt to me. And that may not be the right way to go, but it's just my sort of personal approach. And then the lock screen is interesting. The ability to put live activities and widgets on the lock screen, explain how to do that and why you might want to do that and how it's interesting to sort of combine widgets, for example, with a lock screen of your choice that is, in my case, visually accessible. Uh, I point out that things like live activities and the lock screen are not subject to dynamic type, so they may be very tiny and difficult to read if you're a person with low vision, but that's not everybody. They're voiceover accessible. We talk about the dynamic island, which is a feature that's only available on the 14 Pro and 14 Pro Max phones, but that gives you live activities on the home screen. It's not only voiceover compatible, but there are a couple little tweaks, a couple little ways in which it's what I call extra voiceover compatible, because, for example, you can see the status of time have the status of timers read out to you in voiceover, which is kind of a cool thing that isn't even available uh, without it. So I've tried to include all of the things in iOS 16 that people would be interested in, iPadOS 16, as well as some of the features that the new phones provide. And I will say that I haven't had access to all the new phones and all the new iPads. I got access to a 14 Pro Max relatively late in the cycle, but I did include Dynamic Island conversation in the story. And I think for the most part, if you are a user of iOS 16, whatever device you have, you're going to find the coverage of the features that you want to use. And it's going to address accessibility, which is the whole point, right? So here's the little tiny sales pitch. If you go to iosaccessbook.com, you can buy my book, iOS Access for All, for $25 US. If you pay $30 US, you can get a zip file that includes both the EPUB and the PDF editions, because customers actually do want those. And so I provided that for them. You can also buy it on iBooks. I get less money if you do that. Apple gets... Uh, it's 30% cut on uh, books, just as it does on apps. And by the way, I do kind of think it's interesting that all the hoopla over how much Apple charges for apps, commissions, and this sort of thing, uh, it's the same for books, friends. So every book you buy from Apple Books, 30% uh, goes to them and 70% goes to yours truly. But however you want to buy the book, feel free. Uh, you can follow the book on Twitter at iOS Access Book. And on Mastodon, I don't have an account for the book, but you can follow me. I'm at zeppelin.flights, and my username is Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. So if you have any book questions, Twitter, Mastodon, or just on the website is a great place to get in touch. Thanks for listening to Parallel Number 79. Let's get some more contact info out of the way. You can follow the show on Twitter at Parallel Pods. We are also at Parallel and we're at the RelayFM.social Mastodon server. So that's RelayFM.social. Parallel is the account. Keep up with us over there. Relay.fm slash Parallel to subscribe to the podcast. And I especially want to encourage you, friends, become a member of RelayFM. And if you're so inclined, become a member of Relay specifically for Parallel, because that's kind of a vote for the show. It, it gives me confidence, a little coin in my pocket, too. But it gives me and my uh, it gives me confidence when I talk to my friends at Relay who run the network and I can say, hey, I've got a bunch of listeners out here who are part of Relay because they really like Parallel. So if that's something you feel like doing, it's five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year. 
And annual membership shows are coming up in May. So you're going to be hearing from me and from a lot of other Relay.fm podcasters about what's going on. Uh, There's a lot of good reasons to join up. Let me tell you, there's a Discord server. There's a special behind-the-scenes podcasts, including the member shows, and all sorts of other opportunities to connect with the Relay FM network. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.